welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. All we do is win, 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 no matter what. At least this week. Only two cases, so let's kick it off with crimmigration. You know, to get it out of the way, before taking a deep dive into credibility and motions to remand for consideration of new evidence. And remember to hit me up if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for these two cases and the many more that you've come to enjoy. Our first case is Vuramindi v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on August 24th, 2022. This case is about stalking and divisibility. Mr. Vuramindi is from India and became a lawful permanent resident in 2008 through his U.S. citizen spouse. But he demonstrated, quote, erratic behavior towards some of his neighbors, end quote, which eventually resulted in a misdemeanor conviction for stalking in violation of 18 Pennsylvania Statute, Section 2709.1A1, receiving two consecutive 15 to 30 month sentences of imprisonment, back to back. Rough. While in prison, DHS initiated removal proceedings, charging Mr. Vuramindi as removable under INA Section 237A2EI for having been convicted of a crime of stalking. And that is indeed one of the things that that removability provision covers. But the categorical approach applies to the inquiry, meaning that the question is this, does the federal definition of stalking match the Pennsylvania definition required for conviction here? It doesn't matter what Mr. Vuramindi did. The question only is, what do the two statutes cover? The IJ and the BIA held that there was a match, making Mr. Vermundi removable. Then Mr. Vermundi filed a bunch of motions with the BIA, which the BIA denied, and which the Third Circuit is now concluding were denied in error. As so often in cases like this, the argument came down to mens rea, or mental state. In matter of Sanchez-Lopez II, 
published by the BIA in 2018. The BIA held that, among other things, the federal definition of stalking as used in the INA requires that the defendant have, quote, the intent to place the victim in fear of bodily injury or death, end quote. In contrast here, the Pennsylvania conviction can be obtained, quote, either with an intent to place the victim in reasonable fear of bodily injury or to cause substantial emotional distress, end quote. That second way isn't stalking, as defined by the BIA in matter of Sanchez-Lopez II. And that's because to get a conviction, all that must be shown is an intent to cause a, quote, fear of non-physical injury, end quote. Oil realized this problem before the Third Circuit, and so it argued that the Pennsylvania statute is divisible on mens rea. That is, Oil argued that to convict, a prosecutor must establish the specific mental state that the defendant have, not just simply that he had one of the two mental states that I just mentioned. But that's not the case. Even though the text in the Pennsylvania statute on mens rea is listed in the disjunctive, separated by the word or, Quote, that alone is not conclusive, end quote, to establish divisibility. And yeah, we're going to have to get into the weeds here. Relevantly, the Pennsylvania statute criminalizes people who, quote, engage in a course of conduct or repeatedly commit acts towards another person, under circumstances which demonstrate either an intent to place such other person in reasonable fear of bodily injury or to cause substantial emotional distress to such other person, end quote. What the statutory text does not do, said the Third Circuit, is, quote, repeat the phrase, an intent, end quote. It only says that phrase once, and then lists out two ways to satisfy that intent. Quote, this suggests a single intent element that can be demonstrated through one of two means, end quote. Also, quote, the legislature's choice of the verb demonstrate is another strong textual signal that the alternative intents are means, not elements, end quote. Noted, quote, demonstrate usually means to illustrate or explain, especially with many examples, end quote. Sounds like means to me. I wonder what other criminal statutes use the word demonstrate. Some other Third Circuit case law adjudicating the sentencing framework of a similar criminal statute seem to support this holding on this Pennsylvania statute, and while the Pennsylvania state court decisions don't answer the question definitively, they seem to lean in Mr. Veramundi's favor, if anything. Same with the relevant jury instructions, which apparently in Pennsylvania are only guidelines and not binding anyway. Good to know. That means the statute isn't divisible as to the mental state that the defendant had, based pretty much on the statute's text and without need by the Third Circuit to satisfy the realistic probability test or find a case that supports that reading. Which means the modified categorical approach is inapplicable, which means the IJBIA and Third Circuit cannot look at the conviction documents to see which mental state Mr. Vermundi had. Which means Mr. Vermundi wins and almost surely that he doesn't lose his green card. That's how it's done. Congratulations, Rachel A. H. Horton and Courtney G. Selesky for petitioner. Here's a bit more that I didn't talk about. Looks like some of the arguments that I just discussed weren't fully made before the BIA, at least not so clearly. Looks like maybe Mr. Veramundi received new pro bono attorneys on appeal. The decision's a bit unclear. 
What we do know is that the BIA didn't address a lot of these arguments, believing, erroneously it turns out, that Mr. Viramundi had waived his challenge to removability. Usually that means that a circuit can't address the arguments unmade before the BIA, or at a minimum, that the circuit must remand for analysis by the BIA in the first instance. But the Third Circuit held that neither of those things applied here, and neither had to be done. Importantly, the BIA doesn't have any expertise in evaluating criminal convictions or conducting a categorical approach analysis. To the contrary, the BIA must defer to how the Third Circuit does such things. They're legal questions, not fact-finding, and it doesn't relate to straight immigration law. So why remand for another analysis? Said the court. And that is Viramindi, the Attorney General of the U.S. That brings us to Rivera Medrano v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on August 26, 2022. This decision is about motions to remand and credibility. And it's a doozy. Strap in. Ms. Rivera Medrano is from El Salvador and was sexually abused by her stepfather in that country when she was a young child. When she and her mother reported it to the police, the stepfather fled. But he returned years later when, by that time, Ms. Rivera Medrano was in high school, and he threatened to rape her. It also seems like the stepfather later demanded that Ms. Rivera Medrano assist him in dropping off a bag with what appears to be drugs to what appeared to be 18th Street gang members, which appears to have been done under threat of rape. The stepfather then beat and raped Ms. Rivera Medrano anyway, shortly thereafter, all while in high school. Ms. Rivera Medrano and the mother, estranged from the rapist naturally, reported the event, but the stepfather wasn't arrested, and Ms. Rivera Medrano fled to the U.S., that was in 2017. But when apprehended at the border, Ms. Rivera Medrano did not disclose this abuse to the immigration enforcement officers who she encountered, quote, instead stating that she feared returning to El Salvador because she had refused to transport drugs for a gang member, end quote. She did, however, disclose the sexual assault in her credible fear interview with asylum officers shortly after that. She also explained the story about the bag and how she did it under threat of rape, and that she believed it was drugs. The asylum officer deemed her credible, and that she had a credible fear, and so she was placed in removal proceedings before an immigration judge. I'll stop here to note that under the new regulations that have or are about to go into effect, Ms. Rivera Medrano would likely have not gone to an immigration judge, but would have instead gone to an asylum adjudicator in a non-adversarial proceeding for adjudication of her asylum claim. Thank you very much for a very helpful CLE provided by Catholic Charities Miami this very morning on this very issue. Anyway, back then, in immigration proceedings, Ms. Rivera Medrano found herself, pro se, without an attorney, in detention, and without an ability to even ask for a bond hearing. That latter issue, the inability to even request a bond hearing, is due to a decision by Attorney General Barr that I believe reversed the decision from the BIA during the President W. Bush era. According to Attorney General Barr, if I recall correctly, asylum seekers who come to our border must remain detained forever without an opportunity of a bond hearing before an immigration judge, even if they have a credible fear of persecution and even if they have no criminal record. Attorney General Barr's decision was subsequently challenged in federal court, and I don't believe it's still in effect. I could be wrong, and this decision isn't actually about any of that. 
But I guess at the time of this hearing, it was in effect. And so Miss Rivera Medrano remained detained, notwithstanding her past rape, incredible fear of persecution, and lack of a criminal record. And so, Miss Rivera Medrano eventually told the immigration judge that she wished to, quote, leave to my country, end quote, rather than remain in immigration prison and fight her case. So the IJ ordered her removed, and she was physically removed to El Salvador. She re-entered the U.S. after spending nine months in El Salvador. She was caught, the prior removal order was reinstated, she was deemed to have a reasonable fear, and she was placed in withholding-only proceedings. She remained detained, but this time she went through the whole process in detention without an attorney. But this time, because of that prior final order of removal that she had accepted from detention, Ms. Rivera Medrano was no longer eligible for asylum, only withholding a removal and convention against torture protection without a path to a green card, even though it was all based on the same story. And by this time, Ms. Rivera Medrano had essentially told the same story to asylum officers two different times, separated by a few years. The credible and reasonable fear interview transcripts didn't match up perfectly. And those transcripts are actually not transcripts at all, and are not verbatim documents of what was said, a fact that the First Circuit notes throughout this decision. Nor, of course, did they match up with the CBP notes from that initial border encounter, when Ms. Rivera Medrano didn't mention the rape and other details. All of this led to a difficult cross-examination by ICE, again, Ms. Rivera Medrano didn't have an attorney, and an adverse credibility finding by the immigration judge. The IJ did state, however, that, quote, if this court were to have judged the respondent's credibility based on her testimony before the court upon being questioned by the court, then this court may well have found the respondent credible, end quote. But alas, the various transcripts that are not actually transcripts, and which the IJ deemed inconsistent with one another. Mr. Baramadrano obtained counsel before the BIA, but the damage was kind of done. Counsel also, however, filed a motion to remand for consideration of new evidence that was apparently previously unavailable. The plot thickens. Namely, and in addition to some other evidence, quote, an evaluation and report by Dr. Stephen R. Knowlton, a clinical psychologist who evaluated Ms. Rivera Medrano and discussed how her post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, symptomatically would have affected her ability to recount her experiences, end quote. Love it. Not for Ms. Rivera Medrano, obviously, but the litigation strategy. The BIA dismissed the appeal and denied the motion to remand, holding that the new evidence doesn't change the fact that Ms. Rivera Medrano was not credible. A contraire, said the First Circuit. And a contraire, the court said, notwithstanding the BIA's mandate in matter of FSN, that under such circumstances, quote, a respondent must present previously unavailable evidence to the BIA that is independent of the prior claim or refutes the validity and finality of the credibility determination in the prior proceeding, end quote. And that's because the evidence here did, according to the First Circuit. The psychological report, quote, challenges the reasoning underpinning the IJ's adverse credibility determination, which was the basis for denying her relief, end quote. The psychologist explained in detail, for example, how the PTSD, quote, manifested in symptoms such as strong physical reactions when reminded of traumatic events and difficulty remembering aspects of those events, end quote. Might explain discrepancies in testimony about traumatic events. 
If properly considered, quote, the report challenged the foundational premise of the IJ's opinion that Ms. Rivera Medrano was not credible because certain details of her hearing testimony were inconsistent with other details in the credible fear and reasonable fear interview notes, end quote. What a report that must have been. The report got pretty detailed about it all, but that's what good experts do, right? They dissect the IJ's decision, or if pre-decision, anticipate the weak points of a case, and explain why there exists a scientific or other expert reason for adverse facts and the case context as a whole. At the end of the day, even the BIA recognized in its 2015 decision matter of JRRA that, quote, mental illness or cognitive disability may cause some applicants to exhibit symptoms that affect their ability to provide testimony in a coherent, linear manner, end quote. Not only all of that, but in line with decisions like the En Banc Fourth Circuits in Portillo Flores, episode 62, the First Circuit reminded everyone that an adverse credibility finding based upon a discrepancy related to what occurred to someone as a child is on shaky ground, as such a discrepancy, quote, would be entirely consistent with an imprecise or over-inclusive characterization of obviously traumatic childhood sexual abuse, end quote. The Third Circuit appears to have a similar holding from 2005. So remand was warranted, because the psychological report definitely was material and could have changed the results of the IJ's decision. It's now up to the BIA to decide whether, under matter of Coelho, the evidence was previously unavailable and undiscoverable, such that Ms. Rivera Medrano can succeed on her motion to remand. But I mean, she was litigating pro se from detention, right? The fight for Ms. Rivera Medrano continues. For the third time on the podcast, I believe, congratulations to my friend and listener Sang-Yoom Kim and the ACLU of New Hampshire, in addition to attorneys Giles Bissonette and Henry Clementowitz, on the brief. Judge Kayata concurred in part, but mostly dissented. And I just love experts, so I leave you with this. This case serves as a nice reminder to all that there is nothing stopping practitioners from bringing a psychological expert into immigration court who, in line with their expertise, of course, could opine that a respondent is testifying credibly, because experts are allowed to opine on ultimate issues in a case. Nor should experts, unlike fact witnesses, be sequestered when the respondent testifies, at least under the federal rules of evidence. And that is Rivera Medrano v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, 
feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.